Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We have just finished a several-month series through 2 Peter, and we find ourselves a few weeks before Christmas, and it's been our custom before we start a new series in the beginning of the year to take this opportunity to think about from selected passages about the incarnation that J.I. Packer, a British theologian that just passed away this year, called the most fantastic truth in all of the Bible. And so we're going to look at a passage that helps us think deeply and consider the implications of the incarnation from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Now, as you're, as you're finding that, let me mention that one of the, the more challenging things, obviously we all know that this has been a difficult year, and one of the more challenging things pastorally as different events have happened in our nation uh, this year uh, has just kind of given us all kind of a bit of, of current events whiplash. And one of the challenges for me pastorally has been knowing what to and not to comment on or speak to about current events that happened this past year. And I'm always thinking, will this be a hindrance or a help to the congregation to mention this? And in that spirit, I, I don't want this to be a hindrance to you because I know that you're wondering, but I, but I am glad to report to you that order has been restored in the universe, the football universe anyway, and Army is back on top and has beaten Navy. My alma mater is back where they should be on top of those dreaded middies. Let me read this text and pray. What a, what a beautiful passage this is. So let's pray that the Lord would um, give us the grace to think deeply about this truth. The writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Now we're just jumping in. We usually preach through books of the Bible. So I want to be careful to make sure that you just at least have a broad brush understanding of the context of Hebrews. It's a letter written to ethnically Jewish Christians who obviously have trusted in the Messiah, but for a variety of reasons, persecution and other things, are tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is wanting to spur them on that Christ is better, the New Covenant is better, and it's an encouragement to Christians who are struggling to endure. And listen to verse 14 of chapter 2 to the end of the chapter. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, speaking of Jesus, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, praise God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, about whom this passage has been written. And we simply ask, like Christians have been asking for centuries, what we know not, teach us. What we have not and truly need, give us. And what we are not, make us by the power of your word and your spirit working through it. In Jesus' name, for your glory, we pray. Amen. One of the more famous sermons in the history of at least our country was preached very early on in our nation's history by Jonathan Edwards, who was one of the great pastors and theologians, maybe the greatest theologian, at least in American history. And he was famous for long, thorough, exhaustively theological sermons. And he preached this sermon called The Excellency of Christ, the admirable conjunction or the joining together of the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ. And what that title means sort of in modern English is that Jesus, a proof of Jesus' divinity and his glory, is that these things that seem to be on the opposite spectrum of one another are joined together in the person of Christ. And in this rather long and exhaustive and glorious sermon, Edwards concluded that the conjunction or the joining together of these attributes that seem to be polar opposites, that don't exist in any other person or creature, is a proof of Jesus' divinity. He says that Jesus is simultaneously the highest and most majestic one, but yet at the same time, he is the lowest and the meekest. He is the most awful, majestic, glorious being in the universe, but at the same time, he is indescribably humble. And Edwards was writing about a verse in Revelation that described Jesus as both our lion and our lamb. And listen to this quote that Edwards concludes this sermon with, at least towards the end of the sermon. He concludes that as a result of the excellency of Christ, that sinners should not hesitate to come to Christ, but should throw themselves at his feet, knowing that they will find mercy there. Listen to this beautiful quote by Edwards. He says, You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. Oh, praise God. What a beautiful picture that Jesus is both our lion and our lamb. Our text this morning, Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18, gives us a glimpse of the beauty and some truths bound up in the incarnation. So I want us to consider two truths because of the incarnation. They simply, building on Edwards' quote that I think we see the truths found in this text, is that because of the incarnation, Jesus is our lion and Jesus is our lamb. First, Jesus is our lion. Let's look back at our text in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says that he 
defeats. Look again at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning he took on the likeness of sinful flesh yet without sin, that through death, through his death, his sacrificial death, that sentence is at the very heart of the gospel, that through the law of the Old Testament convicts all people. And it tells us, it gives us a picture of God's wrath and holiness and how we have all failed to live up to God's standard because of sin. And the penalty for our sin, according to God's holy law, is death. And Jesus substitutes himself. He comes and he is the one and only one who truly obeys God's law as a true human. And he lays down his life on the cross. He dies. And here's the conclusion of the writer of Hebrews. That through death, through the satisfaction, through the removal of God's wrath, he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So how is Jesus our lion? He's our lion simply as we just look at what this text concludes. By defeating death with death, Jesus defeats the penalty of sin on the cross. He satisfies the wrath of God and he takes back the keys that have been temporarily handed over to our enemy, the devil. And he destroys the devil. That's what the text says in the second part of verse 14. He destroys the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And then verse 15. He delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now I think about this idea of living in fear. This fear of death and being in a kind of slavery, not only to death, but the pervasive anxiety that plagues all of us. And I think about this past year, we're living in a a time of of great fear and anxiety. 2020, as we know, has been full of anxiety-producing events, whether it's COVID or the political landscape or the ethnic strife or even financial futures of those in this room who have been affected by all of these things. And our society and culture is marked, I think, as a result of this year by a pervasive crisis of confidence in foundations that we sort of instinctively and unthinkingly trusted in before, but now are wondering whether we can trust in them. Who can we trust? What voices out there are credible? And even fellow Christians that we love and respect are at odds with one another with increasing intensity. And all of this is serving to shake the foundations of our confidence as a people. And on top of that, the ever-present pre-2020 fears are always there and having to be dealt with. Children, as parents, thinking about their children and the future of their children. Maybe you're a single person wondering whether or not you will find someone to marry. Maybe you're a married person wondering whether or not your marriage will survive. Maybe you are just generally wondering about the future. Or maybe you're even wondering why the light's just all of a sudden dimmed, as I am right now. Or maybe, maybe there's some sickness that you're enduring. You have cancer, and you're wondering whether or not the treatments will be successful. You have aging parents. You wonder how they're going to do, etc., etc., etc. 
We are a people that are dealing with fears. So how is Jesus our lion in all of this? What does it mean that Jesus has come to deliver us? That's what the text says. It says that he delivers us, that through death he destroys the one that has the power of death, that is the devil. To understand how Jesus is our lion, I want to put a a theological framework, a thought in your mind, and it is the already and not yet aspect of our salvation. The already and not yet aspect of our salvation. In one sense, Christ has already delivered his people. The scripture is clear about that. Let me put a few scriptures in your mind along these lines. Colossians chapter 1 that we've been studying on Sunday nights and we'll, we'll study again tonight. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 says that he, meaning Jesus, has delivered, or this is God, he has delivered, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So this is past tense. He has delivered us and he's put us in his kingdom. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 7, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And again, that's at the very heart of the gospel, that sin has wrecked us, it spiritually killed us. And the good news of salvation is not that we have to bring something to the table that then God will meet halfway and respond to, but God is responding when he saves a person. Listen to this. God is responding to nothing in you. He is responding in his love that rests outside of you, but is for you if you're one of his people in eternity past. And he has made us alive together with Christ so he gives you a new heart that is equipped with faith that then you are enabled to see and trust in Jesus and he joins you together with his son. That's how he saves you. He makes you alive with Christ who he's raised from the grave in victory. So the defeat of Death and sin and the devil that Jesus has accomplished is ours because we are with Christ in his new life and his victory. That's the heart of the gospel. And Paul concludes, by grace you have been saved. But listen to this, verse 6, and he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This has already happened if you're a Christian. Colossians 1, you've been transferred from the domain of darkness. You've been put into the kingdom of his beloved son. Ephesians chapter 2, you have been, if you are a Christian, made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are in Christ. You can, the, the implications of this are enormous. You, you can never be more loved by God than you are right now. He loves you because he loves you, and he loves you because of Christ, and all that is Christ is yours. It's guaranteed. 
That's why Romans chapter 8, by the way, speaks of the final state of the Christian in eternity, which is called glorification. It speaks of it in the past tense. It says, you have already been glorified. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. These things are already true. But yet, there is a not yet aspect to these things that are already true. They are true in God's mind, in God's eternal plan, but they are not yet fully realized in time, on this earth, in our lives. And that's what Paul says, not contradicting himself, when he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So even outside of time, we're seated with Christ forever. We're dealing with continuing sufferings in this present time. See, already, but not yet fully realized. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes again, verse 7 through 9, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, you're a wreck, and nobody would look at you and say, man, you're worthy of being saved, but God saved you anyway so that people, when they look at your lives, they can say, wow, look what God has done, not look what Joe or Susie has done. We are, verse 8, afflicted right now in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And then skipping to verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4, so we do not lose heart, Paul concludes. And he's wanting to make sure we don't lose heart because he knows that we've read these other passages that say these things are already true but yet they don't seem to be fully realized in our life, and so that might cause discouragement. So he's saying we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are transient are seen or transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What I want you to see as I read these verses is do you see the tension in the conclusions of the New Testament as it speaks about the varying aspects of our salvation? Already these things are true, but they are not yet fully realized. And so how do we read that into our text in Hebrews chapter 2? Jesus has done these things. He has delivered all of his people. But yet we're living in this in-between time where if you are in Christ, these things are already true. They cannot ever become more true. They're true, but they are being realized. Their trueness is reaching its full consummation in this life that God is leaving you here to live after you've been saved. Now, a very valid question, I think, is why is it like this? What is God up to in allowing for this gap between the already and not yet? Well, the short answer is that God has deemed this to be so for the maximum display of his glory. But that can be sometimes, although a right answer, without explanation, it can be a less than most helpful answer for people that are discouraged in their struggle. So practically, how do we flesh that out? I think the answer is, and we could spend a lot of time thinking about this, but God uses our lives, 
he uses this in-between time between the already and the not yet to in a more, listen, please, to, listen, to, put, to put on display in a more distinct way the preferability, the worth, the beauty of the Christ that we are going to. So he uses the process to preach a sermon through our lives. And that process allows for the display of his grace over time in a way that he uses to bring other people to faith in Jesus so that they begin the process, the already not yet process, that he uses to bring other people to Jesus and his kingdom advances through the ages, through and through. I think that's what God is doing in this already not yet. So that's, that's why we can look at Hebrews chapter 2 and we can say he has delivered us. And yet we are being delivered. So then Jesus is our lion that delivers. And yet Jesus is our lamb. Now what's the connection between Jesus being our lion and our lamb? How can he be this lion that delivers and defeats death on the cross and defeats our enemy Satan and delivers us finally to himself. And yet how can at the same time he be this ferocious lion and this tender lamb? Well, the way, here's the connection, the way he nurtures us from this already, this not yet to this already, is by being a gentle lamb to his people. So let me read verses 17 and 18. Jesus is our lamb. Look at verse 17 of Hebrews 2 again. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That means God, God the Son, that Colossians chapter 1 teaches us is the creator, that Robert read this morning in John chapter 1 is fully God, is God, no beginning, no end. God the Son, God the Father, together in eternity past. Therefore, he, the Son, had to be made. This is stunning. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The creator God, the son, becomes a babe in the manger so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, so that he might identify with us, that he might be sympathetic towards us in the service of God to make propitiation or to make sacrifice, to atone for, to satisfy the holiness of our triune God, to remove the wrath for the sins of the people. Verse 18, he concludes, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So how is Jesus our lamb? How is he portrayed as our lamb in these two verses? Well, he's becomes like us in every respect. What humility. Compare a lion to a lamb and the ferociousness of a lion and the meekness and the tenderness of a lamb. The humility of the lion becoming like the lamb and he is becoming like us. We could meditate on this truth of the aspects of Jesus' humility and taking on humanity for days there is nothing, here's what we conclude, can conclude from just this one little truth. There is nothing that we face, internal or external, that he is not 
utterly and exhaustively familiar with and sympathetic towards. That's what Hebrews 4 verse 15, a couple chapters after our text concludes, the writer says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. There's no distance between Jesus and our pain. There's no distance between Jesus and our frailty. Because he is one, listen to the rest of the sentence, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Volumes have been written on that one half sentence, attempting to plumb all of the glorious depths of the truths in those few words. Suffice it to say that Jesus is a gracious, a merciful, a sympathetic, a tender, a lamb-like friend and brother to sinners. The text says he's a merciful and faithful high priest. He goes between. He's the mediator. What does the priest do? The function of the priest in the Old Testament was to be a representative of God to the people and the people to God. And Jesus is the only priest that can do that perfectly because he's truly God and truly man. That's why Paul concludes in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And then notice in our text it says that he makes, we've already delved into that just a bit, that he, is, he makes propitiation, verse 17, for the sins of the people. And so when you think about Jesus being the lamb in the Old Testament, through the law of Moses, God's people in the Old Testament were commanded to offer sacrifices to make atonement, to satisfy, they were to make animal sacrifices, to satisfy the wrath of God. And on the day of atonement yearly, they would have to take a spotless lamb and sacrifice that lamb on the altar to make atonement for their sins. But the problem with that Old Testament shadow, that Old Testament command, is the blood of lambs and bulls and goats can never fully make us clean. And so all of these Old Testament laws about the sacrifice of these animals and these spotless lambs were shadows that were pointing towards the true Lamb of God, which is Jesus. In fact, that's what the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, a few verses after we read this morning, concludes when he sees Jesus, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so what John does there in the first chapter of John is he he gives us a picture. He clarifies for his listeners what the Old Testament sacrifice was pointing towards. The lambs and the bulls and the goats, the blood spilled on the altars for years and years and years in Israel was all just a shadow pointing towards Jesus who is the Lamb of God who finally and fully takes away the sins of his people. He propitiates, he satisfies, he removes it. That's why we can read Romans 8 and say that this is true, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we have received the true lamb who has taken away our sin once and for all. But how does this help us? How does knowing that Jesus is our lamb, this humble lamb, help us? Well, we say a lot here. I think there's just 
application every time we think about how God meets his people. He, he puts his spirit in us when he makes us alive. We read that in Romans chapter 8. If you're a Christian, you're dead in your sins. You're devoid of the presence of God in your life. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new life. And he puts his spirit, the spirit of God indwells you. That's Romans chapter 8 verses 15 through about 17, that the Spirit of God dwells in us. It allows us to cry out, Abba, Father. So he gives us his Spirit. He gives us his Word that he has written to instruct us and correct us and show us what is right. And he gives us his family, the church. He puts us into a family and he helps us. He's tender. And therefore, we should be very tender with one another. But in all of this, I want us to think about as we conclude That Jesus, the way he helps us, the way he's a lamb, and what Edwards has concluded, and we must conclude, is that because he is so tender, we are able to go to him, to go to Jesus. And we may not say this enough in our circles, in our And the type of church that we are that cares deeply about truth and good doctrine and being right about very important things, all of those things, I don't want to hedge on a bit. But when you think deeply about those things, it can sort of, if you're not careful, you can sort of stay in a merely intellectual and a merely academic or merely theological type of state with God. But that good theology should press you into God towards him it shouldn't just let you make a dry calculation away from him and so what I think this text is telling us what Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 18 what the incarnation is saying to weak and wounded and anxious and fearful Christians today is that we can go to him he is our lion and our lamb Listen to what Jesus says about himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He doesn't say come to me, all that have every fine point of doctrine figured out. He doesn't say come to me if you've had a relatively good week in your right living. He doesn't say come to me if you're on point with your Bible reading plan. He doesn't say, come to me if things are okay in your marriage. He doesn't say, come to me if you've had a relatively sin-free week. He says, come to me, all who, are la- all who labor and are heavy laden. And what does he say? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And listen how Jesus describes himself. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The point here is that he can be trusted. He's tender. He's a gentle lamb, a gracious Savior. That's why in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3, and then it's repeated in Matthew chapter 12, I believe. In Isaiah 42, it's prophetically speaking about the ministry of Jesus, this tender, suffering servant. And it says about Jesus, listen to this, it's talking about Jesus' ministry, and it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now think about that picture for a moment. Reeds, just think about 
reeds that grow on the bank of a river or something. And they really didn't have a whole lot of value, certainly in biblical times, other than to be picked and maybe used for baskets or some other type of, of, of material. And so they weren't that, that valuable because they were so common. They were everywhere. And if they were broken or bruised, they were of no value because you don't want to make a basket out of broken reeds because then your basket won't hold up. And so this very common reed that isn't really that valuable because it's everywhere is certainly of no value if it's bruised. And what does Isaiah say about the ministry of this lion and lamb? This worthless, common, everyday thing called a bruised reed, he will not break. And then he adds to the analogy, he says, a faintly burning wick or a smoking flax, a little ember, just the the end of a little wick that can't be revived, that's about to go out, that can't start any other fire, that has no value, he won't step on that wick. He won't snuff it out. A faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He is taking this picture, and the Bible is so beautiful, these two things that are of no value to anybody around them. Because maybe they've bruised themselves. Maybe they have let the the flame of their own life in God be, be, be snuffed out by their own sin or by the wickedness around them. We're all a strange and mysterious combination of our own sin and the sin that's been committed against us. And it has caused all of us to one degree or another be bruised or faintly burning. And how does the lion and the lamb treat bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks? He does not break them, and he does not snuff them out. Friends, that is glorious news for those that see this. The incarnation of the lion and the lamb means that bruised reeds are not broken, and little embers that are barely burning are not stepped on. Probably my favorite Puritan, Richard Sibbs, who was a British pastor, English pastor, in the 1600s, wrote basically a whole book on that one half verse, Isaiah 42, verse 3. And this book is called The Bruised Reed. And listen to what Richard Sibbs concludes. This is just a few sentences in about a 140-page book on a half verse. But listen to what Pastor Sibbs concludes. These are sweet words. He says, what should we learn from this? Meaning, what should we learn that Jesus does not crush bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks? What should we learn from this? Let Let me stop here before I read this. Don't fall into the temptation to read yourself out of this application of this text. Some of you, here's, here's where just about all of us are. We're, we're in one or two camps. We are so beat up and we're so discouraged that we've bought into the lie that these truths of the mercy of Christ can never really apply to us. That's a lie. 
Don't buy into that. If that's not you, then you are probably tempted to say, you know what? Boy, Brad, this is a sweet message for somebody that's struggling in here. And and underneath that is kind of a, a kind of subconscious arrogance. You, all of us in this room, are in such need of the tenderness of God that we have no idea how desperate we are. And so maybe you find yourself beyond grace, or maybe you find yourself in a relatively place sort of not needing grace, and oh, I I wish that that person was here to hear this kind. No, friends, don't read yourself out of this text. Listen to what Sib says as a conclusion from this text of Isaiah 42. What should we learn from this? But to come boldly to the throne of grace in all our grievances. Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open up all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Go to Christ, although trembling, as the poor woman who said, if I may but touch his garment, we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. Go boldly to God in our flesh. He is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone for this reason that we might go boldly to him. Praise God. Praise God. Dear bruised reed and smoldering flax, right now in the deepest part of your soul, are you fearful and anxious? Do you think that there's something in you that would cause him to turn his face to look away? Is there some habitual secret sin that seems to be triumphing over you? Is there some habit? Is there some addiction? Is there some mindset? Is there some pain? Is there some wound that is keeping you from going to Christ? Dear one, what calculation are you making when you let that thing keep you from the one who says, come to me? That's why he became like us so that we can come to him. Go to Christ. Go to him. And here's what I want to say before I pray and before we have two dear new members of, members of Crosspoint be baptized, a husband and a wife. What does it look like in our distracted age to go to Christ? And we talk a lot about Bible reading and fellowship and gathering together. And we talk a lot about good doctrine. All those things are absolutely fundamental. But I think one of the weaknesses of many American Christians in our distracted age is somehow by all of these constant inputs, we have left behind the beauty and the power of getting alone with Jesus and just pouring out your heart to your Lord who loves you. So 
Friends, right now, I pray that the Holy Spirit is just speaking to you. Go to Christ. Get away from the TV. Get away from the phone. Get away from the computer. Get away from whatever the distraction is. Make a plan. Go to Christ. Open up your Bible. You don't need a plan. You need Jesus. Go to him. Pour out your soul. Start praying until you start praying and leave yourself there at the foot of Christ. Go to him. Go to him. You will not be turned away. Will you do that today? Will you do that this week? Will you? Will I? Will we go to Christ? Will, with all of our plans and all of our planners and all of our schedules and all of our emails and all of our texts and and all the things that pull on us, here's the question before every bruised reed in this room and every smoking flax, will you go to Christ? Will you sit at his feet? Will you get alone? Will you finally humble yourself? Will you pour out your heart? Will you give him your grievances? Will you confess your sin? Will you go to Christ? And when you go, what will you find there? You will find a lion who is ready to fight for you and has delivered you. And you will find a lamb who is merciful for you you and will gather you to himself and will give you everything you need. Oh, dear one, go to Christ. Oh, preacher, oh, Brad, go to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the incarnation. It is unexplainable. It's glorious, immeasurable. It's beauty is unattainable. It's so fantastic that we can't even find words to describe it, but we can see it and believe it And we can rest in the fact that we have a Savior, Jesus, who is our lion and our lamb. So, Lord, may we go to him. May believers in this room go to him. May my friends who came here not believing go to him and find salvation for their sins and entrance into the kingdom of heaven. May all of us, in whatever place we're in, go to him. And Lord, as we see the gospel proclaimed in the testimonies of this husband and wife, may it stir our affections and our confidence that when we go to you, we will be met there with a gentle and lowly lion and lamb-like Savior. In Jesus' name.